Well, good morning. One of my uh, favorite uh, comedy movies is the movie City Slickers. Uh, I'm sure some of you have seen it. I was surprised after the first service, uh, a young boy's uh, first or second grader came and told me that was his favorite movie, too. So, you know, hey, I guess, um, what does that say about my maturity level? I'm not sure, but... uh, but of course, if you haven't seen it, it's a it's a great kind of buddy movie uh, about uh, a character named Mitch. And Mitch is a 39 year old guy played by Billy Crystal, and he's experiencing a midlife crisis. And so he he calls up two of his buddies who are also experiencing midlife crises, and they decide to go on a cattle drive in Colorado. And of course, these there's city slickers, there's these newbies about this, and and the guy who leads the cab drive is this kind of tough, crusty, strong, intimidating guy played by Jack Palance named Curly. And there's scene, there's a scene uh, where um, Curly and Mitch are having a conversation, and Curly says, "Do you know what the secret of life is?" And he points one finger to the sky. He says this, and Mitch says, "Your finger?" He says, "No, no." Curly says, "One thing." Just one thing. You stick to that and the rest don't mean nothing. Mitch says, but what is what is the one thing? And Curly points his finger at Mitch and smiles and says, that's what you have to find out. Now, several years ago, I remember seeing stacks of the book Purpose Driven Life at Sam's Club. It was a bestseller. And I suppose the reason it sold so much was because it tapped into our human search and need for meaning and purpose. What's the secret of life? What is it all about? A few years ago, there's another bestseller that came out, Eat, Pray, Love. I did not read this one. One woman searched for everything across Italy, India, and Indonesia. It was about this woman who had a nasty divorce, and she was full of depression. Despair, her world was rocked. What is going on in life? What's it all about? So she embarks on this cruise, or not cruise, this, this journey to find meaning and transcendence in different cultures and places. Uh, there's these sort of books and titles are recycled over and over again. And there's something in us that resonates with this search for meaning. We all want the same thing. We want our lives to count for something. We want meaning and purpose. We want happiness. The question is, how do we get it? The woman who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert, <laughs> wrote this about happiness. She wrote, happiness is the consequence of personal effort. You fight for it, strive for it, insist upon it, and sometimes even travel around the world looking for it. You have to participate relentlessly in the manifestations of your own blessings. And once you have achieved a state of happiness, you must never become lax about maintaining it. You must make a mighty effort to keep swimming upward into that happiness forever to stay afloat on top of it. Now, Every person in this room, every person in this community, for that matter, that's what we're kind of trying to do. We're trying to find that, that moment in life where it's a sweet spot, where we're happy, where everything lines up. And, and we do everything we can to kind of stay on top of it, to, to float, because we know eventually it's going to disappear or go away. And there are many options that we, we take to try to achieve meaning and purpose and happiness. And that's where we find ourselves as we continue studying this book of Ecclesiastes. If you weren't with us last week, we start off this sermon series working our way through this ancient book written by King Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon, of course, was uh, the son of David. He was an, an Old Testament king, the king of Israel back in the day. And he, he ruled in a time of unparalleled success and wealth and renown. And, and the book is called a wisdom book because it's meant to teach us how to live skillfully and live well 
uh, in the world. And last week, Solomon points out to us the very real and depressing fact that life is fleeting, that it's temporary, that it's repetitive. He says there's nothing new under the sun. I've seen it all, and it keeps cycling around over and over. The same thing. Things change. The, 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 the chairs on the deck are shuffled, but it's still that we end up in the same place over and over and over. And so how do you find happiness in a world like that? Well, you do what Solomon did. You run experiments. I mean, one way to think about this is Solomon is like a scientist. The world is his lab, and he tries experiments. Okay, uh, how can I find meaning and purpose and happiness? What's the point? What's the secret of life? And so he runs experiments to see which ones will lead to the most happiness. And so let's take a look at some of the experiments that Solomon tried. And we're going to see that not much has changed uh, in the thousands of years since Solomon wrote these words because of the same experiments that we try today. Pick it up in verse 16. Solomon said this, I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Solomon before, or Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. And then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Experiment number one. Study. Pursuit of knowledge, wisdom, understanding, intellectual pursuits. And so this is how Solomon starts. He says, I applied my heart, verse 13, to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is under the sun. So this is, a, this is not a limited scope. This is not just, you know, I want to listen to a few uh, recommended TED Talks on YouTube or maybe go to a couple seminars, hear some motivational, inspirational speakers, uh, read a few books that have been recommended. No, he, he goes on a, on a comprehensive search. He looks at everything, including folly and madness. He's looking under every rock. No stone is unturned, which is an admirable quest, isn't it? I mean, it's what lies at the heart of our incredible educational system, universities and, and schools uh, and, and bodies of higher knowledge and libraries and bookstores. All of this is a part of a quest for knowledge and understanding. And it's a good thing to do, right? And there's some value in this. Solomon acknowledges as much. He says in chapter 2, verse 13, Then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly as there's more gain in light than darkness. In other words, it's not like wisdom and learning is all bad. There's some value. But Solomon says this experiment fails for two reasons. The first is some things are just inscrutable. They're beyond our understanding. No matter how much wisdom we have, there are certain things we, can't, can't, we just cannot figure out. That's what he means when he says in verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, what is complex and crooked cannot be made straight, can't connect all the dots, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So there's unsolvable problems, and there will always be some aspects of life that remain a mystery, no matter how smart or how educated or how much we search, there are certain things that are beyond the pale that we just can't understand. But there's a second reason this experiment fails. More knowledge can just produce more frustration. What do you mean by that? Verse 18 again. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Have you ever said, 
I really wish I didn't know that. I really wish I didn't know that. It just it adds a burden to you. It adds maybe responsibility or it adds frustration because you understand that there's nothing that can be done. It can't be solved. Can't be fixed. Learning can't make you happy. Understanding life doesn't always make us happier. That's why some people say ignorance is bliss. You know? John Cheever said this, The main emotion of the adult American who has had all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture is disappointment. Disillusionment. So Solomon concludes, We can't find our meaning through learning through a bookstore, university, through gurus, no matter how good or enlightening they, enlightening they might be. That's experiment number one. Let's move on to verse one of chapter two, part of what Katie read. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved meaningless. Now, I should clarify real quick before I finish this. When he talks about meaningless, it's used like 40 times in this, in this, this book. He's not saying that it's, there's, there's no meaning at all in these things. He's saying the word used here is hevel, H-E-V-E-L. It's a Hebrew word that kind of refers to like smoke. It's wispy. You can't hold on to it. It's there, uh, and there might be some temporary good or meaning, but then it just disappears. You can't hold on to it. You can't, can't hang your life upon it. It can't be foundational for you. Then he says, laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried sharing myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Experiment number two is a little bit more fun. Pleasure and experiences. Solomon says, I, I tried alcohol. I tried fine food. I tried comedy. I tried sex. I denied myself nothing. He became a hedonist. He had it all. And he says, I enjoyed more pleasure than anybody who had ever gone before me. And he had the means to do it because he was wealthy beyond imagination. Again, nothing new under the sun, right? We see this experiment, this, 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 this approach today. Make enough money to live the life. Have a vacation home, take certain trips, hit the beach, hit the mountains, hit the bar, party, have sex, buy nice things. Maybe a lighter version of this would be distract yourself with entertainment, video games, social media, athletics, whatever it might be. And after he enjoyed everything, Solomon said, I still felt empty. Meaningless. It was like smoke. Couldn't hold on to it. Nothing solid. Nothing to build my life around. And it's ironic. The harder we go after pleasure, the less pleasure we find. It's never enough. Nothing perishable will ever satisfy us, no matter, we, what, no matter what we get to enjoy. Uh, later in Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon writes that, that eternity, that human beings were created with, with eternity in us. There's this, one way to think of this is there's this God-shaped hole in our lives, like the donut that Lisa had. There's this, this hole in the middle of our lives, and we try to fill it with all sorts of things. The only thing that can satisfy us is God. That's what we're created for. Joy Davidman said, living for his own pleasure is the least pleasurable thing a man can do. If his neighbors don't kill him in disgust, he will die slowly of boredom and lovelessness. That's experiment number two. Let's move on. Verse four. 
Solomon says this, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. Very impressive. Experiment number three, work and achievements. Do things. Get things done. Leave your mark in the world. Leave a legacy. Karl Marx, thought you'd never hear a pastor quote Karl Marx, said this, Labor is the very touchstone of man's self-realization. Man labors to transform his world, to put his own mark upon it, to make it his. And that, that's what a lot of us do. Our culture tell, kind of pushes us that way. In our world, is work is where we get a meaning in our lives. Plot the right career moves. Network. Get in the right position. Get noticed. Get your name out there. Get promoted. Build a name for yourself. Accomplish something. Solomon did this. But this experiment failed also. Look at his realization of this in verse 18. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is, it's meaningless. Solomon says, no matter how hard you work, no matter what you accomplish, you're still going to have to leave it to somebody else someday. And that person who sits in your office or runs your practice or runs your business or has your farm, they might turn out to be an idiot. That experiment fails too. For experiment number four, we begin again at verse seven. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born into my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Experiment number four, accumulation of stuff. In his case, even people and materialism. So if Solomon was living in our world, he might say things like, I built more stuff, I bought more things than anybody else around me. I had more homes and more cars and more computers and more 401ks and IRAs and investments, more employees than anybody else around me. I had it all, but it wasn't enough to satisfy my heart. Now, some of you might be hearing this and thinking, hey, wait a minute. Uh, you know, I, I get a lot of enjoyment from some of these things, and I, I get it. I do, too. I mean, it's nice to borrow it, buy something new, a new car, new clothes, new computer, whatever. But the reality is that consuming material stuff is like drinking a, a cup of coffee. It's going to give you a jolt. It's going to stimulate you for a little bit, but after a few hours, it's going to wear off. I mean, that's why advertisers are so good at getting us to buy something new. They know that we want the kick. The, 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 the stimulation that comes from consuming, but that, that, that they know that that thrill eventually is going to wear off, whether it's a couple hours later, the next day, a couple weeks later, even a year or two later, you're going to want something new because the thrill is worn off. Those things are not designed to satisfy us, really. There's a book entitled Affluenza that was written, I think it was published in 2012. And the authors noted that in 1986, there were more high schools and shopping centers in our country. By 2012, there were twice as many shopping centers as there were high schools. And they concluded, as they looked at the money involved, they said, we now, at that time, spent more money on shoes, jewelry, and watches than we did on higher education. 
which is staggering when you think about how much a four-year education at a college costs today. That's a lot of shoes, jewelry, and watches. Americans have a billion credit cards and trillions of dollars in debt, not including mortgages because we just don't have enough. We're trying to fill our souls with stuff, and even though it's not doing the trick, we just keep trying the same old experiment over and over again, and it only leads to more debt and more frustration. And what Solomon learned almost 3,000 years ago is that when we take the good gifts of God, like education and sex and cars and clothes and in our day computers or whatever it might be, and we make them the goal of life, in the end we will not find fulfillment, but we will find a lot of frustration and disillusionment and a nagging sense of, isn't there something more? In the book Affluenza, they also quote a study that between 1970 and 2006, the average income in our country, when adjusted for inflation, went up 18%. And they say during the same period, we acquired more stuff than we know what to do with, more information than we can ever keep up with, more seminars, books, and magazine articles on sexual satisfaction than Solomon could ever have dreamed of, and we have more recreational opportunities than ever could be engaged in one lifetime. But that also from 1970 to 2006, the divorce rate tripled, teen suicide tripled, and we invented reality TV because we were so incredibly bored. The conclusion has to be that we have a great depression in our culture, but it's a depression of the soul because of all our education and affluence and sexual desires and expression and recreation that cannot meet the deepest desires of our hearts. And so as we continue to run after all this stuff, we're finding out the same thing that Solomon found out thousands of years ago in his experimentation, that these things cannot satisfy and it ends in frustration and disillusionment. So what's the point of Solomon's experiments? Well, here are a few things that we can chew on. Ecclesiastes challenges our false hopes and our assumptions about meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. Sort of like, a, you can think of it this way, it's sort of like an existential, a philosophical in- intervention. Kind of like a slap in the face when somebody's being hysterical. Or a splash of cold water in the morning to wake a person up to the reality of a new day of the world in which they, they have to go out into and live and work and, and breathe. Or you can think of it as tough love, like when family members and friends confront a loved one about their addiction and behavior. And when they say something like, this is not healthy, this is going to destroy you, this is not going to lead to happiness, you're wasting your life on this stuff, this is reality, face the truth. And they do that because they care about the person, right? And they have truth, and they want that person to embrace truth because they know that when that person does, they'll be set free to flourish in their life. Ecclesiastes is kind of like that exposes the false hopes and assumptions about what life is about and how we can best enjoy and live it. But Ecclesiastes doesn't want us to lose hope. It wants us to be humble and grateful. I mean, if all you did in the intervention was to dissect the person, to expose them, to lay it out very carefully, get in your shots and make them face reality, and you didn't offer them any hope or encouragement or next steps, well, that would be cruel because it would lead them to a deeper place of despair and depression. But Solomon, he wants us to face these realities. He wants us to be then thankful for the blessings God has given us and to realize that we've not 
earned or deserve these things, but simply receive them as a gift to be humbled by them. Basically, Solomon is saying, hold loosely to these things, all these gifts from God, and take each day as a gift. But don't you dare use these things to find fulfillment and meaning. Okay, we're about to land this. We're coming to the good news now. Okay, verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? So after having run all these experiments, trying all these things, Solomon comes home to God. And his conclusion is simply, enjoy eating, drinking, and working as a gift from God. He learned without God, there's no enjoyment, really, of the good things of life because God is the one who gives us happiness. The solution, he says, is to put God at the center because when we put God at the center, all the spokes work better. And for us, we would say, after the New Testament, if Jesus is at the center, he'll give us his grace, and as we receive his grace, we can enjoy all the good gifts that he's given to us. And keep them in the right place and priority. Which is kind of the point of the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. Solomon says you can be rich, you can be smart, you can be attractive to, to the opposite sex, you can be whatever. You can have all these things, all these accomplishments, but, but they're not meant to be the center of your life. He says unless God is at the center of your life, more money, more education, more sex, whatever, they're not going to satisfy. They might stimulate you, but in the end, they're going to leave you frustrated. Remember what Jesus said? We quoted this last week from the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, which is this idea of Jesus kind of ruling over our life as we follow him and obey him and walk in his ways. And it's righteousness, which is this idea of living rightly with God and living rightly with each other. And then all these things, things that really mean, make a difference, the things that really matter, will be given to you. So we don't need a thousand women or a different man to satisfy us. We don't need more money or stuff to satisfy us. What we need is Jesus. What we need is Jesus. Because he is at the, he, he, because he loves us, because he's redeemed us, and he wants to give us more of himself. So for your sake and for your family's sake and for God's sake, put Christ at the center of your life. That's the simple but incredibly important application in response to Solomon's words. Put Jesus at the center of your life. Now having said that, it then begs the question we all must ask ourselves. What is at the center of your life? And a good way to determine what's at the center of your life is take a look at your use of time. Take a look at your use of your resources. Take a look at what occupies your thoughts. Whatever occupies the most probably is the center. So put Jesus at the center of your life. Because as you do so, you will find the fulfillment and the life and the happiness and the joy that can only come through him. So that's the one thing. The one thing, the secret to life is Jesus. It's Jesus. It's always been Jesus. It always will be Jesus.
Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for the gift of life and for all the blessings in our lives. Lord, we know that we did not earn them and we don't deserve them. Um, Sure, we put in some work here and there, but Lord, you've given us the abilities. You've given us the opportunities. So Lord, we, we, we humble ourselves before you and we receive this life as a gift. Lord, forgive us for sometimes putting other things in the center and experimenting with other things to try to find meaning and happiness and purpose. Lord, help us to reverse that and to put you, Lord Jesus, in the center. And then out of our our love for you and our relationship with you and our connection with you, Lord, that out of the grace we receive, Lord, that these other things, we would treat them as gifts and not entitlements and not achievements. We thank you and we praise you, Lord Jesus. We offer ourselves to you in your name. Amen.